Hi, I'm Jez Rolfe. And I'm Kath Giles. Welcome to the Tree Radicals podcast, an inquiry into the future for trees, forests and humans. Join us along with experts, innovators and thinkers as we consider what positive action for these life-giving systems might look like. The Tree Radicals podcast is brought to you by Woodland Presents with Timber Strategies. Which is one strand of the Tree Radicals inquiry. Stay tuned for new Radical online and in-person content and courses starting soon. It is an absolute pleasure to be here this afternoon with Izzy Tree, who with her husband, husband is it, Charles? Yes, yes. Charlie. Um, Charlie have been involved in, well, a revitalisation, a rewilding, a renewal of NEP estate. And um, I'm really excited to hear a bit about it and to sort of I have a lot of questions here but to start with could you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and how you came to be where you are? Yeah I'm Isabella Tree so I'm an author of um, a book called Wilding The Return of Nature to a British Farm and it's really the story of how my husband Charlie Burrell and I inherited this 3,500 acre estate in Sussex in the late 1980s from his grandparents. It was a very intensive arable and dairy farm when we took it over and already losing money hand over fist. And we spent the next 17 years trying to make ends meet, trying to make the the farm viable. The problem is we sit on very, very heavy clay and it's really not cut out for intensive modern agriculture in the kind of weather we're having today with rain slashing through the windows. Um, You literally can't get heavy machinery onto the ground at all. So it means that sometimes for six months of the year in the winter, you just can't do all the maintenance job, the sowing of spring crops and everything that other farmers are capable of. So in uh, about the year 1999, Charlie made the momentous decision to give up farming and turn to the the wild side and start rewilding. I brought up, trained in a very traditional forestry circle in Scotland, where if it wasn't a straight line of Sitka spruce, it wasn't forestry worth talking about. Could you, perhaps the best starting point is to tell us what you think rewilding means because in preparing for this interview I have read so many definitions of what wilding or rewilding is. It's so interesting you know we're we're obsessed with with sort of definitions and classifications and I think that's one of the problems of how we approach nature and and nature-based solutions. and one of the sort of characteristics of rewilding is that it's very difficult to pin down. And I rather love that about the word because I think it means that we have to keep thinking outside the box and not being um, categorised and, um, and put into sort of classifications, as it were. Um, academics particularly love to <clears throat> try and define rewilding but so do politicians and policymakers, and so, of course, do foresters. Um, so I see rewilding as really essentially putting nature back in the driving seat. So conventional conservation tries to protect and preserve wildlife 
and you have nature areas that are specifically designed to keep habitats in stasis in order to kind of benefit one or or a, a suite of, of particular species. And that's, of course, incredibly intensive, very expensive, very time-consuming. And human beings just don't have the resources to be able to do that across the planet, to actually manage that intensively. So... What rewilding really is, is recognising that there are drivers in the system, such as natural water processes, um, large free-roaming herbivores, natural regeneration of vegetation and trees, that are dynamic in themselves. And allowing these things to happen sort of starts lifting the glider back up into the sky again so it can fly. It allows the freedom for natural processes to happen And then biodiversity just kicks off. So essentially, it's about trying to inject the dynamism back into the landscape again and then sit back as human beings and trust nature to perform. I think we'll we'll definitely come back to that uh, later in the interview because it's something I'm really interested in. It'd be great to explore this whole linguistic thing. I gave a lecture on agroforestry last week and it's infuriating having to categorize types of agroforestry when they're all so mixed up but that's a whole subject for another day one of the areas I want to start is I'm standing in my office on Dartington Estate in Devon which almost a hundred years ago was bought by this crazy couple who had crazy ideas about the reinvention of rural and how things were being done wrong and there was better way to do things that pushed in their case social rural complexes and people came to visit because they were these crazies doing crazy things. Are are you crazies doing crazy things? Well a lot of people would say we are and certainly in the early days they did. Um, Lovely to know that you're in Dartington. We were actually down there last week and, and visited Dartington and swam in the dart which was heaven. Um, So it's a wonderful spot and it's very inspiring for, again, you know, thinking outside the box and thinking of new ideas. So no, I, I think one of the things I would say that does not, that makes us not crazy or perhaps not self indulgent. So this is not just a whim or something that is a sort of fanciful pastime that we have just engaged in is the fact that it makes financial sense and to many people that's very unromantic and it's it doesn't chime with our ideas of of nature but I think it's very very important if we're looking at the conservation of nature in the future Um, we can't simply do it through altruism Uh, it has to make financial sense and of course that involves monetizing things in a very different way. It means recognizing all the different benefits that nature can bring us. That's not to say that we can't appreciate the infinite wonders of nature at the same time. It doesn't need, mean we have to put a value on everything. But I think what's happening now at NEP is not only have we become one of the most biodiverse hotspots for species, for wildlife in Britain in less than 20 years, but we're also providing public benefits um, in terms of ecosystem services is the kind of buzzword. 
So we're mitigating against floods, we're purifying water, we're purifying the air, we've restored our soils, we are sequestering carbon, and we are producing trees. And so this is hugely, hugely important when we look at ways that are low cost, but produce huge benefit for a sustainable future. But at that point where you made that decision and you started must have been a pretty nerve-wracking point. I mean, there's no turning back, is there? Down, once you're down this road, it's like painting your bedroom a dark colour. No, you because know, you can painting always... It, painting it white again is going to be a nightmare. This, you can always, this is it. You can always repaint. Um, you know, we could go out there now and put in, put in ploughs. You know, there's, of course there's, a, there's ways of turning back. What was a relief for us, I think, was that we had managed to relieve ourselves of a, a loss-making business. After 17 years of trying to make the farm profitable on our very, very heavy clay soils, and that's why we were never going to win on this ground, um, we were £1.5 million in debt. So in many ways, the decision to do something different was a financial one. And quite often that happens. You know, you, it's only when you, you actually draw a line in a failing business, when you realise it's not working, and you, you, you actually have the courage to say, enough is enough, we're going to do something different. Suddenly, all that headspace opens up, and you've got the time to stand back and think, what could we be doing now? What should we have perhaps been doing all the time? And both Charlie and I um, are interested in nature. I mean, we used to travel the ends of the world to find wonderful wildlife and experience, you know, living landscapes. So it was very appealing to us to do something for nature. But we also wanted to work with the land rather than battling against it all the time. And that's why rewilding really appealed. Does it feel like a relief? Does it feel easier to manage the land in this way? Well, the land is managing itself. That's the beauty of it. So, you know, the thing about rewilding, which is perhaps the, the hardest challenge for human beings is to stop managing. That is so difficult. We're such control freaks that we think we have to manage everything. But out there at the moment, the the primary drivers of the system are free-roaming herbivores in very low stocking density numbers. So they're very low numbers because that is to maximise the effect of of the habitat creation. And also the the systems, the the water systems that we've restored. So we've put the river back onto the floodplain. We've regenerated the ponds and all the standing water and areas that can now flood. So there's a large amount of wetland out there. And that means we have a very dynamic landscape. And our only management tool, really, is culling the animals to keep them at the right sort of number. And so does that... I'm still going to go back to this point. Is that a relief for you? It feels like, um, I suppose, managed land systems, intensively managed land systems require intensive people to do it. It's sort of the spreadsheets and decision-making processes and we get into this sort of cycle of sort of pushing ourselves onto the land and that pushes people into quite high stress positions and the land into very high stress positions at all and it's very obvious your land is returning to a much less stressful 
position by being sort of controlled by its own naturalness. But does that push you as people, Charlie, you into a less stressful existence as well? Is it easier? Yes, I mean, you know, it was it, farming. Farming this land was incredibly stressful, um, and it was really, you know, the stress was mostly borne by Charlie, my husband, because he was the farmer. Um, it was unbelievably stressful, but also you have the stress of knowing that the business is failing, knowing that you have employees, jobs on the line, and the decision to to make those jobs redundant, to sack um, a dozen people, including our farm manager, who was a friend. You know, we we had great allegiance to to our team, and that, in a way, you know, you you feel like a failure. And these were guys with you know children at the local school, and were going to lose their houses as well as their jobs. So it was a wretched, wretched business. Um, but it now the the same land employs two or three times as many people we have different businesses we have um, an ecotourism business we sell our free roaming wild range meat we have um, buildings that we that were agricultural units that cost a huge amount of money to keep the roof on that we're now be able to let out as offices and light industrial use so you're you're actually attracting jobs back into the countryside again. So in a way, there are more people working on this land than before. And that is a a hugely, that's a huge relief that is land that is productive, not just in terms of all the ecosystems benefits that it's providing, but for jobs as well, um, and for enjoyment. So we have you know, we've been able to release this land for human health and well-being in a way that it wasn't used before. So I suppose that very neatly brings me on to something that I'm very interested in sort of exploring. And that's, I spend a lot of time thinking about this sort of urban, rural, unwritten compact where we in rural areas provide food and timber to urban areas and they provide us with pensions and Netflix and all these other services and health and all these other things. And you've sort of moved away from providing those life-giving things, food and timber for shelter to providing health and well-being. And did it, was that something you thought about? or I mean, I'm assuming that you're... Um, productive capacity on the land is much less than it was it's certainly in the short term well i i, th- I think you're you're comparing i think i think your 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 segregation of urban and rural is is quite if i may say it's quite sort of simplistic i think you know you, you can create netflix from your bedroom these days um and that could be anywhere i mean you know i i, I think um, we are not producing food intensively like we did before. Um, and just to note, you know, 70% of the arable crops that we were producing when we were farming went to feed animals, which we know is a completely unsustainable and I would say unethical system. Um, we do produce meat, 75 tonnes of it, 
um, as a byproduct of producing nature. Um, so we are now in the business of producing other things. So this land out there is incredibly productive. And that's what we have to change our mindset about. We still think in a very narrow way about land being only productive if it is providing us with food or with, or with forestry. But what is happening out there on our land is probably one of the most important things for the present climate emergency, and that is carbon sequestration. And then we have water storage and water purification and flood mitigation and human health. So it, it's producing enormously vital goods, but different goods, if you like. And when we look at cities, we certainly shouldn't be looking at cities, I think, as being devoid of nature. Cities have to be connected to nature again. We have to reconnect cities with nature because we have to lower the NHS bill in terms of, of pollution that is, that is really harming our, our urban populations. You know, we, our, our populations are becoming increasingly urban. I believe in the UK it's higher than 80% now. And we are now getting unhealthier as a population, largely because of the pollution from living in cities. So we need to have um, food production closer, closer to cities. We need to have rewilded green belts around cities. We need people to be able to access green space much more easily. And COVID has shown us that manifestly, that we need that connection with life, with natural life, to be good for our own mental and physical well-being. And I suppose it's interesting to think of a whole, a whole spectrum of land uses where you can have, you know, at one end, these huge monocultural businesses, whether they be Sitka spruce or wheat, and then at the other end, these sort of very sort of fundamentalist rewilded projects you could like just closing off a valley in the lake district and just seeing what happens and you sit somewhere on that sort of spectrum we all need to rewild and those monoculture systems of endless you know crop one one single crop as far as the eye can see and sit sitka spruce those days are over what is happening now is a revolution in regenerative agriculture we have to get cleverer about keeping our soils, about sequestering carbon. And monocultures is not the way to do it. I, I think I would totally agree. Um, I mean, there's a discussion over sort of the, the crazy volumes of material we use. But my question was going to be, is NEP a demonstrator or an experiment? Or is it saying... Are you saying this is where all of our land should be, or this is an extreme example, and the should be, and it sits within a whole big circle of regenerative agriculture? No, I think what we're saying is that rewilding is one of the tools in the box to uh, to use to restore nature, to recover biodiversity, and sequester carbon and everything else. We're always going to need land to produce food from. But we have to change the way we look at that. Um, NEP is not the right kind of land to be intensively producing um, food crops from. We can, we can do um, grazing systems. We could even perhaps do mob grazing on, on NEP. Who knows? I mean, we've gone down the rewilding route and we are actually about to embark on a regenerative agriculture project, about three, 350 acres 
adjoining the rewilding to demonstrate a kind of Joel Salatin style um, animal husbandry. But um, for the for the you know the the big arable belts, we still need to have rewilded areas running through those systems. We are the one of the biggest dangers facing us at the moment is the loss of our topsoil, and we cannot carry on using ploughs and chemicals to produce our food. It also produces very unhealthy food. We know that. So the regenerative agriculture system we know is coming down the road towards us. And we know people who are already embarked on that in the UK, but also all over the world. So we will be moving into agricultural systems that are producing food just as intensively, but much more intelligently. So with cover crops, with rotational crops, and with livestock rotating within those systems in order to keep the soils functioning and um, and healthy, and to keep our water to store water and to produce very nutritional, high-value food. But we also need to have rewilding webbing running through all our landscapes, including into our cities, which are going to provide nature for all of us, biodiversity for all of us to enjoy, that are going to allow species to be able to move through the landscape um, in response to climate change, because if populations of species cannot respond to rising temperatures, they are doomed to fail and we'll lose even more biodiversity. But also we need rewilded areas as buffers to protect our areas of forestry, of agriculture, of agroforestry, that will protect against extreme weather events, hurricanes, um, flooding, drought, all these things that are going to be hitting us even harder in the future. And will your forestry follow the same trajectory? And I suppose it's difficult because at the start we talked about this whole idea of linguistics sort of really trying to silo us into forestry and fields and it's not quite like that in a new complex mosaic. But you you talked about this sort of regenerative agroecological approach and will that follow through into your trees and forestry? Well, it depends what you want your trees for. So if you're uh, wanting a commercial crop from them, you will always be um, looking for intensive management. You'll be looking for, for big, tall trees with straight stems. You'll be, you'll be effectively planting plantations, which is fair enough. But we have to be also cleverer about that and, um, uh, and, and not be putting in our Sitka spruce all in one single generation, one species and non-natives and softwoods. We need to be thinking much more cleverly about how to uh, do forestry in a much more bi- bi- uh, sort of diverse, um, multi-generational way um, with co- uh, with um, cover um, cropping so that you're not actually going in and f- a clear felling, um, all, all in order to preserve your soils and maximise um, biodiversity and also increase the resilience of trees to imported diseases. Obviously, if you have a single generational crop of a single species, it's very, very vulnerable to disease. So we, we've got to be, be cleverer about all that. But when we're just talking about getting trees back into our landscape, then I think natural natural regeneration has to be the default mechanism. It's incredibly labour-intensive and carbon-costly 
to put spades in the ground and plant a sapling from a nursery which is probably um, in Holland, import your saplings which may have diseases, put them in a polypropylene tube attached to a tantalised wooden stake and a plastic tie, all the transport costs involved in getting the volunteers or whoever it is, the charities or whatever, to get to the site. And then you've got to take those polypropylene tubes off eventually, or if they do happen to biodegrade, which in my experience is very, very, very rare indeed, then you're getting plastic into the soil. The whole thing is incredibly polluting and high carbon. But most important of all, those saplings that have been generated in commercial nurseries are incredibly vulnerable to disease and climate change. When you look at our ash trees, the only reason our ash trees aren't doomed to fail in the UK in the face of cholera is because we have wild populations of ash which are able to respond, have the genetic diversity to be able to, a small percentage of them, to resist this incoming disease. So when you look at those amazing pollen plumes that drift over the UK from places as diverse as Siberia and the southern Mediterranean, you can imagine how complex and biodiverse our trees in the UK already are, how they're already preparing themselves for climate change. If we simply go out there and plant saplings propagated in a commercial nursery, we are limiting, severely limiting, the ability of our trees to respond and sustain themselves in the future. And if that, if that re- natural regeneration is... Norway spruce blown in from Scandinavia on an easterly wind or Douglas fir blown in from the neighbouring estate, that's, that's fine? Whatever comes, comes. And if it survives, great. I mean, that is one way of showing how, how um, nature can respond. If it, comes, if it gets, comes here naturally, then that's nature. Um, we're planting all these things anyway. So they're out there in our landscape anyway. Um, But the the important thing is that we have to recognise that nature can can regenerate trees for nothing um, very, very easily. And often the way that nature will do it is will demonstrate to us what trees need to beware or want to beware. We have a, a fixed idea in our heads somehow that trees can't regenerate without us. But one of the the things, one of the reasons they can't regenerate without us um, is because we have got rid of thorny scrub, which is the the natural nursery, the protection for saplings as they grow in the presence of um, grazing rabbits and browsing deer. So if we allow areas like NEP to regenerate with thorny scrub, so with hawthorn, blackthorn, dog rose, bramble, all the kind of things that even um, on conservation sites, in nature reserves, volunteers spend their weekends scrub bashing and getting rid of. But this is one of the most biodiverse habitats we have. And it's the natural nursery to protect the, the incoming acorns, um, the seeds that are going to be the trees of the future. In medieval times, there was a saying which everybody knew, the thorn is the mother of the oak. And if you were caught getting rid of thorny scrub in the new forest, um, you, could be, you could be lashed with a whip or sent to prison because it was so important 
for the future trees um, uh, you know, coming, coming online. I have never heard that. That's a fantastic saying. Um, I mean, geek forestry question alert, because I know I'll have mail coming in from the, the forestry brigade if I don't ask it then. Do you not do any pest control at NEP for squirrels or deer or rabbits at all? No, I mean we 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 um, the the one species that we actually go uh, go out and target is American mink uh, because we're hoping to uh, be part of a project to reintroduce water voles, which are one of our most I think it is our most rapidly declining mammal, small mammal. So we'd love to reintroduce those here, and we need to be on top of the the uh, non-native mink. Um, and of course, we kill, we cull our deer um, in order to keep the numbers uh, relatively low. So you have a kind of endless battle between vegetation coming up and that impact of the herbivory of that browsing and grazing effect on vegetation. And so that's what's creating the messy margins that's fantastic for habitats, for a mosaic of a kaleidoscope of habitats for biodiversity. So... Otherwise, we don't we don't regard anything as a pest. Um, you know, pest is a loaded word. It's a forestry word. Um, you know, we have grey squirrels out there, and hopefully one day we'll have pine martins, which should sort them out pretty pretty sharpish. But really, um, nature nature sorts all that all that stuff out for us. So, no, it's it's very low maintenance from that point of view. This hadn't really occurred to me before. What did you're you're happy to reintroduce mammals but sort of expect trees to regenerate naturally and look after themselves what would be the difference between introducing tree species and introducing mammals no i mean i think um the 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 point is you you i mean in an area of three and a half thousand acres, we can't simply allow animals. We, we're in an area which has very low deer numbers anyway, and we need to need to have free roaming animals in the system in order to keep the vegetation down. Because unlike a forester, unlike you, we don't want to have a closed canopy woodland being the end result here. That's very species poor. It's very relatively static. It's, it's, it's pretty uninteresting from biodiversity point of view. So what you want is that open wood pasture. You want that dynamic um, forest system in the original sense of the word forest, which was not closed canopy trees at all. It was very much a mixed um, kaleidoscopic landscape of open grazed areas, thorny scrub, gigantic big open grown trees groves of trees wetlands everything in the mix that's what forest really meant in the in its original word for foray meaning outside the cultivated area it comes from the latin so um i think to answer your question you would only consider really um introducing trees in an area where you really are sure that there's not see a seed bank available for natural regeneration and that might be um, perhaps in the highlands of Scotland um, where you've got miles and miles of denuded landscape but it you may also have a dearth of um, 
particular trees, say like wild service or crab apple or trees that have historically been considered non-viable, you know, not, not commercial. So they're just not in your landscape anymore. But it is amazing where trees will naturally regenerate. We, we think that, you know, um, we're so desperate to go out there and help and get those spades in the ground. But there's a wonderful book that's just been written by Andrew Painting, who's the ecologist at Mar Lodge in Scotland. And they have been um, rewilding that area of the Cairngorms um, with an amazing effect. They've collapsed their deer numbers right down to allow natural regeneration to happen. But very high up, above about 600 metres, they, they felt that there really wasn't the seed source there and were considering going in and planting. And for some reason, the planting got delayed. And suddenly, they were finding these areas regenerating with high montane scrub, really rare species like dwarf willow, different types of of montane willow, that they had no idea the seed source was still there. And if they'd gone in and planted, they would have ruined the chance of that amazing native montane scrub to come back. Mm. Interesting. It's um, yeah, the, the, there's so much for me to to think about in this whole rewilding and this whole um, spectrum of land uses and the the potential complexity of future land use. So you talked about this sort of uh, network of rewilded areas. I think with more agroecological agriculture and forestry in between it, and it's. Um, it's it's a fantastic ideal, um, something which I can almost picture. Uh, should we be optimistic that we'll get there? I think we can be. I mean, I'm more optimistic now, and uh, you know, in the last couple of years, than I've been for a very very long time. Um, I think what's happening in terms of farming subsidies in the UK post Brexit, dare I say it? Um, and I was a you know staunch Remainer, but. Um, uh, I now now see that you know the biggest silver lining for me um, with Brexit was this path that we've been able to go on that has allowed us to shed these absurd farm subsidies that we're paying landowners and land managers just to own land and also incentivizing them to grow primarily arable crops on land irrespective of whether it was suitable for growing those crops or not, which is exactly what happened here at NEP. So now the the government, and this seems to be the direction of travel, is um, with the new environment land management scheme, is going to be rewarding farmers and land managers for doing positives for their land. So not just for producing food, but for producing food responsibly. So restoring their soil, making sure that they don't pollute watercourses, actually improving water quality, improving biodiversity, improving tree cover, including, thank goodness, now they've included natural regeneration. So the mindset is changing very, very quickly. And around us here, we're seeing farmers now beginning to look at their land and uh, they won't be rewilding um, their whole patch of land by any means. But there are areas that have been always been unproductive, you know, that, that boggy corner of a field or that bit of wetland or floodplain that now make no sense to carry on flogging to death with a plough. And so why not consider 
rewilding those strips of land, those little patches on your land and connecting with your neighbours. We're now part of a, a farm cluster and there's loads of farm clusters now all over the UK of over 30 farmers who are working out how to connect one piece of ancient woodland on their land with their neighbour's piece of ancient woodland, perhaps planting a hedgerow or allowing their hedgerows to grow out. So we're suddenly, you know, the, the, the mind is beginning to open with all these possibilities of how we can increase the potential for nature on every patch of land that we, that we own, that, that we have access to. You've talked a bit about, I mean, it's interesting, soil health has come up again and again in this conversation. And community has come up quite a lot as well. I mean, can our soils recover? And can of course, our... absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, when you just mentioned, said that, it, was, it, it just occurred to me, this connection. There's, there's no... You know, uh, it's no coincidence, I think, that, that humus, the word for soil, is connected with human. You know, everything comes from the soil. We depend, our lives, our every species on this planet depends on that health, that, that little um, veneer of soil that covers our terrestrial planet. So we have to take care of that. I think the, the most exciting thing at NEP is seeing how fast, how quickly topsoil can recover if you allow it to, if you, if you stop using the chemicals, if you allow free roaming animals in the right numbers to re- help regenerate the soil with their dung, their urine. And if we would, we, and we are lobbying to be allowed to do this, their carcasses, because it, that's another thing that's missing from the system. We don't allow the rotting down of bones and sinew and skin into the soil anymore. And that's depriving the soil of a huge number of essential nutrients and minerals and including calcium, which of course is good for birds' eggs. So what we're doing all the time in our intensive management systems and our, our husbandry systems is taking livestock off the land, taking this off the land all, all the time. If you, if you see even a dead deer on the, on the land, you are supposed to remove it and incinerate it. You know, this is a lunacy. And so um, we would love to have rotting carcasses back in the landscape. Um, but uh, definitely the, the, that sense of community is something I think that we have been so inspired by at NEP, the response to people visiting and being just thrilled by hearing birdsong and the sound of insects again and it's almost like we've been able to reverse that shifting baseline you know we're getting used to a baseline of impoverishment all the time and thinking that silence is normal and that no birds in the sky is normal but when you come to somewhere that is heaving with life that restores a different baseline and you go back to the greater countryside and then you notice when the bird song is missing, and that so this this is this is really interesting, and I suppose one of the criticisms I've heard levelled perhaps at NEP or other rewilding projects is almost it's exactly this: you can go somewhere and you see an amazingly rich, biodiverse place, but there's a much 
deeper message here about complexity of land use and the need of society to change the way it views the land from something that's there for our disposal perhaps to something that's there for us to be custodians of or nurture or be appreciative visitors on that land and is that message that very complex message getting through do you think i think so slowly i mean it depends in some areas i think very quickly i i think again we've got this connection between humus the soil humans and humility and i think we have to learn to take a step back and understand how nature has evolved such infinite complexity that it has the solutions to all the desperate problems we're facing now. And one of the issues, I think, is that we have to admit that we have got it wrong, that for the last 70 years we have been going down the wrong track with agriculture, with intensive chemical, industrial um, ploughing agriculture. And to admit that we've got that wrong is very, very hard. And farmers particularly find it hard. And when and where do you draw the line? Um, it's, it's a question that um, I think people find very, very difficult to answer. When, when is it ever bad enough for one to admit, I got it wrong? Um, and, but I think views are changing, I think, with government policies changing, um, it is now, we are now being encouraged to think differently. And that's incredibly exciting. And I think people, people get it, um, whether urban or rural, people get it. We need to, you know, we, we, we have to think long term now. And we have to work in a way that, that works for the benefit of nature and if we don't do it for the benefit of nature ultimately it won't be for the benefit of us i think that's a really good place to start drawing this interview to a, this discussion to a close this idea that nature is so complex it almost certainly has a solution if we open our minds to the fact that we might have failed in a way one last question that that we're trying to ask everyone um What's the single most radical change you think we need that we're just not embracing at the moment? Gosh, the single... Well, I mean, it, it, it is a... It is a it, it's a holistic view, I think. That, that is... Um, that, that's the difficult thing. Everything is connected. I think... I think one of the, one of the issues at the moment is that we, you know, we are thinking about climate change as the big, big emergency, and of course it is. But many of the solutions for sequestering carbon, um, if you go simply down that route in order to, to sink carbon or to extract carbon from the atmosphere or whatever you're going to do with geoengineering, can actually be incredibly harmful for the environment as a whole and for biodiversity. But if biodiversity itself, if life itself is your number one priority, inevitably that will sequester carbon too. That will answer the carbon problem. So it is looking at life. How can we maximise life on Earth? Just like E.O. Wilson, the great American biologist, says, if we can 
dedicate half Earth, half our terrestrial landmass to nature, to life, to biodiversity, we will solve the problem of climate change and everything else. Fantastic. Izzy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and I must, must get down to see Nep sometime soon. Please do. We'll, we'll give you some wild swimming like we had in the dark last week. <laughs> Excellent. I'm happy to swap wild swimming. <laughs> Lovely talking to you. We'll be engaging with many more inspiring people, ideas and tree-based practices through the full Tree Radicals inquiry. Check out the details on our website, see the link in the bio.